0: Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. I suppose the lesson of yesterday was: if you've got a ridiculously strong lean to an over, maybe consider taking it. That's okay. That's okay. Here's the thing: we've we've talked a lot about how. I don't like to actually get in on the overs in particular series, even when the numbers point that way. I'm kind of looking for opportunities to get in on unders. And uh, so I don't feel bad about missing out on the opportunity there. But that Boston Memphis game, remember we talked a great length on yesterday's show about how even though the total in game three ended really low, you were looking at like 224 possessions or something way higher. Was it 224? Something like that. Might have been higher than that even. I think that was close. Way above where the game actually ended and still well above where the posted total was. So then we saw this last game yesterday. The total didn't move from the previous game. All right, well, look, here's why. Because Milwaukee wants to run. They want it to be a faster ball game. And again, Milwaukee did get the tempo going a little bit. They just couldn't capitalize. Drew Holiday was very bad in this one he was a minus 23 just couldn't get a shot to go down a lot of ill-advised looks 22 shots I mean this was a game where Milwaukee and kind of the first one I think where you could look at and say all right this team really did miss Chris Middleton in this one because Giannis was only fine he wasn't extraordinary missed his free throws didn't hit his shots It's the same way Uh, And Boston had a really big comeback behind Al Horford. Remember how before the series started, I said Big Al's the guy? Remember when Philadelphia brought in Horford? That was specifically to deal with Giannis. And he's not as young, but damn, he turned back the clock in that one. Sheesh. Still think Milwaukee wins this series, but I'm way less confident after them blowing a lead in this one. I'm starting to think maybe I undervalued how much they, they would miss Chris Middleton. But regardless, you know, we looked at that one. You knew the pace of the game lent itself to an overlook. And uh, we just didn't play it. Warriors held on, beat the Grizzlies without John Morant, 101-98. That's a barely, if ever there was one. That's another one where the, the speed of the game kind of belied what the final score showed it should be. Lots of possessions again. So you're, at that one, you're kind of betting on how, how quick do you think the ballgame, not so much how quick you think the ballgame is going to move, but whether or not teams are going to make shots. But let's move along. This is Fantasy NBA Today. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. It's Tuesday, May the 10th. This is offseason episode 22? 22? Yeah, I think we're at 22 now. I think I've lost my headphones in my left ear. I don't know why that's happened, but it has, and it's extremely disruptive actually for trying to do a podcast and hear what i actually sound like when i'm talking but i'm doing my best it's very muffled what i don't know is whether or not it's the headphone or some of my other equipment but it is very annoying to try to do a show with two headphones in where you're only hearing yourself out of one but we'll get through it i'll get through it i'm dan Baspers. thanks again everybody uh tuesday Philly at Miami, Heat, 3.5-point favorites, total of 2.09.5. Dallas, Phoenix, Suns are 5.5-point home favorite, total of 2.15.5. And And I started to do a little bit on yesterday's show, talk about those two series and then tried to peel away quickly because I didn't want to use up the playoff chat for today's episode. 2-2, both series. Interestingly, three of the four semifinals here, conference semifinals, are tied 2-2. That's good. It's good playoff basketball. Evenly matched, relatively so. Phoenix-Dallas, each winning their home games. Miami-Philly, each winning their home games. Milwaukee and Boston, each splitting their home games. That's how we got to this point in the 3-2-2 series. And then the Warriors took care of business at home. Would they have without John Morant? Or if John Morant was playing? I don't know. It doesn't matter. We're, We're working on the betting side. So... Last ball game, Phoenix lost by 10 in Dallas. That one finished right on the posted total. Actually, it was uh, went under barely, but it was so close to the number that effectively you're talking about, again, you know, a couple of made free throws or one made bucket. That's the total being right. But what we need to do here on the podcast is find out was it right because uh, because the, the line was spot on or was it right because of some other factors? So if you look at the last game in Dallas, and you know the Mavs want to keep the ball game relatively slow, they did a pretty good job of that. Mavericks hit 23 pointers, kept their turnovers down, so they were uh, efficient from an offensive standpoint, and that allowed them to score 111 points, even though, remember, just 85 field goal attempts, 11 turnovers, you're talking about 96 there. And then only 19 free throws, so somewhere in the neighborhood of like 105-ish, if you want to fuzzy number it, number of possessions. Over on the Phoenix side, they out-rebounded the Mavericks, but also had six additional turnovers. Overall, they did have just a few additional possessions. They were closer to 110, so somewhere around 215. So then we look at this next ball game and say, all right, well, the pace was right around the number. Boom. 215 that's where the total sits for today's ball game as well the reason you might the reason you might consider looking at an under in this ball game is because series do tend to slow down as they go more than anything it's not so much that they get slower but that the teams start to figure out basically what everybody on the other side is trying to run and Will Dorian Finney Smith hit eight three-pointers again in the next ball game? Probably not. Will Chris Paul foul out in 23 minutes in the next ball game? Probably not. You try to throw those weird individual player outliers out because it all does kind of come out in the wash. Overall Mavericks played a decent ball game, Suns played a decent ball game, had too many turnovers and needed their closer who they didn't really have. Not either game in Dallas, but certainly not in this one. Devin Booker kept them afloat. He had a better ball game. The other guys weren't as good. I mean, this type of stuff it bounces back and forth. You can't be like, oh well, Devin Booker's not going to be as good in the next one, so the Suns aren't going to score as much because then you could argue Chris Paul will probably be better, Mikael Bridges will probably be better, DeAndre Ayton will probably be better. On the Dallas side, you say, oh well, Dorian Finney Smith won't be as good, but Luca might shoot better than 36%. Reggie or. uh Jalen Brunson might shoot better than 41%. These little things, they come out in the wash. That's why we focus more on if there's a team-wide aberration or pace of play. And the pace of play has this one pretty much spot on the number. So I don't think I'm touching Phoenix-Dallas on the total, and you guys know I don't really care that much about the sides in the postseason. I don't think that's where you can get colossal advantages unless you see big things that haven't really been accounted for like you know a team getting really good shots and missing a ton of them although i think you'd probably take advantage of that in the total anyway. Miami Philadelphia the total has now inched under 210 to 209 and a half. It was at 208 in the last ball game before it went soaring over the mark to 224. Why did it go so high last ball game? Because Philly shot 54% If you're thinking it went super high because the game was all of a sudden extraordinarily fast, you'd be mistaken. Because the teams only combined for 65 rebounds, which tells you pretty much all you need to know, and in addition to the fact that teams only combined to actually take 150 field goal attempts in the ballgame, the teams did combine for 62 free throw attempts, and Miami made almost all of theirs. The Heat really took advantage of the foul line. The Sixers, not quite so much. But who cares because they had 16 threes on 54% shooting. James Harden was better. Maxie was better. Danny Green was better. Joel Embiid was better. Or really back, more than anything. He didn't have to do as much, but he shot 54%. So, boy, Twitter was going crazy that the Heat wouldn't throw Duncan Robinson in there when nobody else could hit an outside shot. Kyle Lowry's out, by the way. He's been ruled out. He played in the last ball game, but he's back out again. This is Kyle Lowry at the end of seasons in a nutshell. When he makes it through a healthy end of season and postseason, it's a it's a massive surprise these days. Uh, he really wasted a nice game from Jimmy Butler. But that look, this is the beauty part of it. If you dig in deep, first of all, crap ton of free throws, that artificially inflates stuff. Philly only had about 100 possessions in the ball game. They really did make the most of them because of the free throws, because of the good shooting, because of the three pointers. The fact that they had 16 turnovers only brought them down a little bit. He'd had a couple extra possessions because of the turnover thing, mostly three turnover uh, gap there. They were up in the like 108, 109 range, which I guess for this series is a little bit quicker. But you're still talking about only about 208, 209 possessions in the ballgame. So the fact that it ended at 224 tells you that these teams just overachieved a little bit. And what is the number for tonight's ballgame? 209. So oddsmakers now are rolling with the pace. They're rolling with the pace of the ballgame. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, as this series now becomes a best of three, with Miami still with home court advantage, are the teams ready to make that defensive adjustment? Have they kind of run out of offensive tricks? Will James Harden have another explosion kind of game, or will he settle back in? You know, what's Miami going to be doing? Can Jimmy Butler be that good again? Will they get better three-point shooting? How much does that sort of wash out? If you look at the the two games back, the teams shot terribly. Miami, in particular, was at 35 percent. Philly was at Forty eight percent, which I guess isn't awful, but they had eighteen turnovers. But again, the thing I think we need to stress is that in that ball game where the teams combined to put up like 180 points, it was bad offense, but it was also slow ball game. Miami had a hundred possessions in that ball game. Philly had like ninety-six or something like that. And they would have been a dead heat if Philly didn't have eighteen turnovers. The free throws were lower in that ballgame as well, despite the fact that Joel Embiid did play. The other guys didn't get to the line besides Embiid and Harden. And on the Miami side, Jimmy Butler got 10 foul shots out of Bayo, got 8, but the other guys didn't get to the foul line. And that was one of the key differences when you look at Sunday's game. Uh, Victor Oladipo got 10 foul shots for Miami. Tyrese Maxey got 6 for Philadelphia. Those were big changes from the previous games where pretty much everybody else was getting two besides the main guys so you had basically like 14 some odd 12 14 extra free throws from the non-superstars in game four you had great shooting in game four you would have thought that after they put up this big number with the total of 208 maybe the total would be adjusted a little bit farther than one point but no, it's not because oddsmakers have watched this series and they're like this is a slow series. If the teams explode and have an over in a particular ball game, we're not going to say, "Oh, we're going to give you, you know, swing the line 3 4 points because they know you're at coin flip territory now. They'll split the cash. They'll be perfectly happily sp- splitting the cash or they'll be like, "Look, if public comes in and starts hammering an over after seeing a big over, we're fine with that because most of the time in this series, it's been going under. And I remember when the hell these games actually happened? I think it's actually two overs and two unders right now. But the overs have been more fluky. It's been big shooting games. It's been huge free throw numbers. Miami put up 119. I think that was in game two. If I'm not mistaken, they shot 51% in that game, even though they only had like 106, 107 possessions. And Philly only had whatever it was, 103. The total has, or the number, the speed of the game has been sitting between 205 and like 214, pretty much all the way through. So when they go out and they put up 220-something, you say, all right, look, like that's a little bit fluky. If you ran this series 100 times it would go under probably between 55 and 60. So oddsmakers, they're fine with that number because they're going to split the cash or they might even get a little bit more on the over, and they figure long-term, that's a good proposition for them. So what am I doing here in Game 4? I would lean ever so slightly to the under. I don't know if it's enough for me to really go nuts with it because what if Harden actually is heating up? What if Miami does get better three-point shooting in this ballgame? But from the pace of play... It's pretty much right on the mark at 2.09. Will the playoff tempo bring this thing down? What were the complaints between ballgames? Was Miami annoyed about anything in particular? Not really, I guess. I'm sure they'll have something else they're going to roll with Harden, force him away from the bucket, hope that he takes a bunch of threes and misses him again, which has mostly worked. So not much in the way of leans tonight. Odds makers are are putting the number pretty much right on the speed and saying, "Look, you take a shot. You want to close your eyes and throw a dart? Have at it." If you know the teams are going to get it, go for it. If you think they're going to clank it, go for it. Odds makers don't care at this point. All right, I got a weird little lesson today and it it dives into Another one of the mental elements, I think, of fantasy basketball, but at the same, it's kind of the same vein, it's also something that attacks the gut. And today's lesson is, be really careful with who you put on your do not draft list. We all have one. I've got one. You've got one. Some of ours are longer than others. Some of ours are shorter than others. But we all keep looking for reasons not to draft certain guys. When in reality, the only reason you shouldn't draft someone is if you don't think they're going to beat their spot in the draft. And, you know, Joel Embiid is a decent example of this. He's someone that I probably had and many of you probably had on a kind of a do-not-draft list, and then it worked. Would I take him next year where I think he's probably going to go? Eh, probably still not. But it's not because he's on some mythical do-not-draft board I have in my room. It's because I think the percentages dictate that if he's going to go probably top five next year, there's a lot of downward possibility there and not a whole lot of upward possibility there. And I don't have wonderful examples to throw at you, like handfuls of them. But I would say that as you look towards next year, guys that I feel pretty comfortable are going to end up on do not draft lists. Let's just, let's just throw a few names out into the mix. Uh, Paul George is probably going to end up on a lot of do-not-draft lists. He's never 16 on a per-game basis, but he only played in 31 games this year, and he killed a lot of people's fantasy teams. Bradley Beal is probably going to end up on a lot of teams' do-not-draft lists. Anthony Davis is going to end up on a lot of teams' do-not-draft lists. This tends to happen, by the way, with the biggest names in fantasy because they left the, the biggest sting on fantasy teams. Lonzo Ball is probably going to end up on a lot of teams' do-not-draft lists. Miles Turner. And yes, a lot of the guys I'm looking at right now are guys that missed a bunch of games with injury. Do you think Dame might end up on a do-not-draft list? I think there's a possibility of that. It might not be quite as strong. Brogdon's going to end up on do-not-draft lists. And then you get a little bit farther down the board, and you escape some of the guys that might end up on a do-not-draft list because of injury-related stuff, and then you start to find guys that pop up on do-not-draft lists because of tank-related stuff, because of just having a down year. But what I really want you guys to do, and today's lesson is not going to be a very long one, because you know we can't fully produce this lesson until we see where players are going next season, or maybe even have a little bit more data about what their health is might be for next season but what we can do today is look at players look at the list that we just threw out there and try to piece together what's the storyline going to be for some of those guys next season maybe we take paul george as an example of this pg Played 31 regular season games this year and uh, and two play-in games. Or one? Only one. Yeah, he got COVID before the second one. Whoops. Uh, and I would guess that based on him missing most of this season with kind of needing Tommy John surgery, but then just waiting it out, that most folks aren't going to touch him next year. So then you're going to get this weird ADP for a guy like PG where in some leagues he'll go where he might've gone this season. So like maybe near the turn and then some leagues you're going to get whole rosters that just don't draft him. Which is why, and I don't know that we'll ever get this information. I don't think we ever will. If we had basically standard deviations on ADP of where guys are going. We need the mean, the median, and the mode to draw a proper curve for these guys. Because I think Paul George is going to be someone who has a really wide spread on where he gets drafted next year. As opposed to someone who might... I don't know what his ADP is going to be. Let's assume Paul George is going to have an ADP of like 18 to... to uh, meh. I don't know. Maybe he'll go at like 20. Let's say Paul George goes at 20 next year. And someone else that goes near 20 might be Devin Booker, Rudy Gobert. But I bet if you looked at the clustering, that Gobert, he's going to be like a one to two standard deviations on Rudy Gobert's draft position. It's going to be like 16 to 24. And for Paul George, it's going to be like 12 to 30. I think it's going to be basically double. Which again, I don't think we're going to ever get this information, but it is going to create a very odd situation where you might plan for him to go at 20 and in your league he might go at 12 and then in the next league you do, if you're doing a couple drafts, he might go at like 33, which that's not, that doesn't really happen for the guys with an ADP of 19, 18, 19 all that often. Usually there's a pretty tight grouping for some of those early round guys. But anyway, back to the point, uh because we can't, we can't really talk about tight groupings of ADP until we get, again, closer to next year, or if we ever got that data from seasons past. Which I guess someone could do. Like, if they pulled all of it together, you could find out exactly when a guy was getting drafted, but I ain't going to take the time for that right now. I, get, I have a family, for goodness sake. But I wanted to pull on Paul George, pull on that Paul George string here, because... He's going to end up on do not draft lists, and it, it's hard for me to tell you not to put him there, but at the same time, and I get it, in a head-to-head league, it's going to be a pain because you never know when days off are going to be, and like if you look at his recent Clippers history, he played 48 games in the COVID-shortened season, he played 54 games in the scheduled shortened season, and 31 this year. Since he became a Clipper, Paul George hasn't come close to playing a full season of basketball, missing 24, 18, and 51 games between them. But if you can start to do the math on this, all I would say is... Well, okay, there's, there's more than an all I would say. If, if he gets to 54 games, I guess it'd be 64 games next year, because that 54 was in a 72 bag. Uh, if he gets to 64 games next year, and... He's drafted at 20, but his per-game production is like 12 or 13. In Roto Leagues, that probably makes him a hit, or at least a break-even. So all I would say on the Paul George front is, yes, he's someone who very clearly has issues making it through a season anymore. Hasn't really happened since Oklahoma City. He had that gruesome injury in Indiana, and then he came back, and he was pretty damn healthy for about four years after that he's not that old yet born in 1990 so actually just turned 32 a couple weeks ago yeah I mean he's on the wrong side of his prime but it's not like this is someone you should say oh he's fully broken down and he can't come close to playing in a full season like we should look at Paul George and even if you assume he's banged up during the year I think you could still hunt for mid-60s in games played and presumably, the Clippers will have Kawhi Leonard back next year. We know they just re-signed uh, Rob Covington. So they're going to be a good team. Next year is sort of the target year for the Clippers. We're going to make it happen. I think they got to re-sign some guys. Might even be the big guys, but you know why would they go anywhere else? All of this to say, I can't predict exactly how many games he's going to play next year. But if you put him on a do-not-draft list... You immediately, and this, again, applies a bit more in games cap formats than other ones, but you have no idea when he's going to miss his game. So, you know, maybe he's an okay thought for head-to-head. I wouldn't in the second round uh, for someone who's probably going to miss league average number of games or more, but, you know, crazier things have happened. Certainly with an eye more on games cap formats, you got to do the full math on it. The only guys that I think you should consider flopping In a do-not-draft list, in any format, specifically, like, I don't think there's anyone on the Roto side you should put on a do-not-draft board. Nobody. Literally no one. Now, there are guys that sort of end up there kind of by default, like a Russell Westbrook, where you're like, look, I'm not going to draft this dude inside the top 130, but someone will. So there's a 0% chance I end up with him. And so effectively he ends up on a do not draft board, but it's not for real. It's just, I'm not drafting and he's going to go 70 slots before I'm taking him. I'm not drafting Kevin Porter Jr. because he's going to get drafted at, you know, 90 or hundred or whatever it was this year. And I'm not touching him inside the 200. So he sort of becomes a do not draft, but that one's just by numbers. It's an it's an, it won't happen. The result is the same. He never ends up on any of our teams, but the way to get there is different. It's like when your high school teacher told you to show your work. If you were like, oh, well, you know, here's the numbers I have on Kevin Porter Jr., and this is why he's not on my fantasy team, that's different than if you looked at, say, here's the other one. You're looking at a team that's going to try to lose. That would be a reason not to draft someone in head-to-head because you don't think they're going to play at the end of the year. Maybe you're wrong, maybe you're right, but that's a reason to officially not draft a guy. I don't think this player is going to play in March and April, so I'm not going to draft him. Right or wrong, that's a guy you could put on a do-not-draft list. Kyle Lowry is basically the only injury-prone player I would allow you to put on a do-not-draft list, because you know he ain't playing in March. Ever. Dude never plays in March. But really, you know, aside from that semi joke, most, even the injury prone guys, we don't know when those are going to happen during a season. So, yes, in head to head, and I've said a thousand times, I'll say it a thousand more, I think you really do want to steer as best you can into slightly more durable players. They'll carry you through the season. You hope they don't get hurt towards the end of the regular season because that would blow up your playoffs. But just getting games played out of your top four, five, six picks, whatever that happens to be, that's actually really useful on the head-to-head side in particular and you know top three or four picks on the Roto side. But please, I beg of you. Look, I get it. If there's someone on the head-to-head side that's injured a lot, you can kind of put them on a do-not-draft list. But if you're a Roto games cap type, I would say don't put anyone on a do-not-draft board, even if they left just the worst taste in your mouth. In fact, I would argue a lot of the time that those guys that left the worst taste in someone's mouth, those are the guys that ends up as really nice values the following year. We did that with Chris Paul. He had one down year in Houston, and we've been riding Chris Paul for three freaking fantasy seasons ever since. He's been lifting our teams to victory three, three years now. How has that down, how has that one down year in Houston where everybody's like, oh, he's washed, he's old. I don't know how that that's stuck for three years while he's been incredible, but it has. No one wanted to touch Chris Paul three years ago. And I got on this podcast and I said, look, this dude only needs to play in like 60 games in OKC to hit his value because he's getting drafted in the late 30s. People have forgotten. Chris Paul is late 30s in the worst scenario ever. Which is playing on a team that won't let him take a mid-range shot. Sorry, Chris, you can no longer take the shot you're best at. Oh, and by the way, you're not going to hold the basketball either. This is why you don't put players on your do-not-draft board, because you just don't know what the next season might bring. Paul George, okay, he's a, he's a difficult example because he hasn't been healthy in four years, but he's still the example I'm grabbing onto today because if he comes back out there next season with Kawhi Leonard on a Clippers team that is going to be hunting, they are going to be hungry and hunting, the narrative isn't that he needs to play an entire season. The narrative is that he needs to be healthy for the playoffs. But it also means they ain't going to want to end up in a damn play-in tournament. So he's going to be out there, and he's going to be gunning, especially early in the year. They're going to want to get some wins. Rack him up. And then you look at guys like Kyrie Irving. What does that mean for next year? That'll be an interesting one. There's just so many names of guys that... I think, again, really soured people. If you go back and you look at ADPs and draft results and stuff like that and just find the guys who underperform for some reason, Michael Porter Jr. is going to go way low in drafts next year. Do we dare take a chance? I don't know. I don't have to decide now. It's May 10th, but I ain't putting him on a do-not-draft board. No way. Not until I know where he's going. So look at those depressed assets for next year. Guys, that your instinct would be to put them on a do not draft board and instead say, well, wait a minute. If 30% of the people playing fantasy sports put this player X on their don't draft board, that's going to drive that player's ADP way down. They're going to start going late. And then here's the beauty part of all of it the last point I want to make before we turn you loose for your day, ADPs and drafts are kind of feedback loops to some degree. Not always, but often. And so if people start getting into drafts, and Paul George has an ADP of, you know, 22, and they were thinking, hmm, I thought I needed to take this guy near 15, and maybe early on some teams are taking him near 15... But as it goes, and they start seeing, oh, look, nobody else is taking him until 22. They start taking him later, too. And then the folks taking him later take him even later than that. And you can create a feedback loop of these guys, these these anti-buzz players that start low and go lower until the analysts put their numbers in, and that shakes things up a little. But... This is what I want you guys doing as an exercise. It doesn't have to be today. Any day between now and like mid September. So you got a pretty good window there. Go through and look at the players and say, find the like five or six guys that you think, man, this guy was horrible this year. And then figure out why. And then figure out if that might be a path to success going forward. So don't do it, folks. Don't have a do not draft board. Have a. They won't fall to me, bored. Okay? Just think of it in a different way. Put it in a different way in your head. And then for you head to head folks, which I know makes up a very large, constitutes a large percentage of you, you can have a few, but please be judicious. You can't wipe off the whole table or you're going to start taking really weird picks. Have a great Tuesday. Same stuff coming at you again tomorrow rolling through the offseason here i've lost track of how many lessons we have but at least i know this is show 22 i'm dan Vespers for fantasy nba mlb and nfl today yeah man hope you guys are checking those out like i asked you to come on go do it go leave a five-star review while you're at it. i don't need you to do one for this show do one for theirs they're just getting started man they need our help love it all right later everybody